from the studios of Teeing It Up in the Swamps of Jersey. This is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for Tax Day, April 15th, 2019, the day after Tiger Woods returned to glory. And as always, we recap a major with Sean Davison. Good afternoon, Sean. Good afternoon, Jeremy. Um, I said this morning when I appeared on ESPN Radio Charleston, South Carolina, on my buddy Luke Morrow's show, The Morrow, the Morrow Morning Show, that I thought, and, and, and by the way, we're not duplicating content. That interview was a lot of what this means and golf and who's next in golf and whatever. This is obviously going to be our classic X's and O's type interview. Um, but what I said is my kind of overarching thought was, I, th- I thought it was really fitting that the person behind Tiger at 16 hitting the tee shot that ultimately gave him the cushion he needed was Michael Phelps because he's the greatest Olympian. He has as many failings, you know, public failings as Tiger. He's been through the ringer. He's a huge golfer and golf fan, obviously. But to have the greatest Olympian and the person who could turn out to be the greatest golfer of all time literally inches apart from each other, I thought was just an incredibly fitting moment. You know, I'll take it one step further. With Tiger in golf and Phelps in swimming, and you look at tennis with Serena and Roger on the women's and men's side, respectively, with football, whether you like him or not, with Tom Brady, uh, with basketball, with, you know, over the recent years, and not the recent years, the likes of Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, now LeBron James. Uh, You can have a conversation about whether or not Giannis is going to be the next one. Um, Look, these are all athletes in their own respective sports that in our generation, we are going to be able to tell others, kids, grandkids, future generations, about the times that we got to see the greatest potentially ever, or at least the greatest in our time, do what they did best. And I think you wrap it up perfectly there with the greatest swimmer we've ever seen with, at the very least for most of us in this day and age, the greatest golfer we've ever seen, personally, uh, within inches of each other, when Tiger more or less fielded uh, with that shot on 16. And, uh, you know, how incredibly fortunate we are to have seen some of the athletes that we've seen, not just in golf, but in general, over the last five to ten years. And just going through that list of athletes that I've mentioned, not a single one of them. Yeah, there's been some with some setbacks, especially Serena Williams with the blood clots and um, having the baby and nearly dying after having the baby because of the blood clot issue. Um, But to this extent, the comeback that it took, all the surgeries, all the self-imposed issues, everybody writing off Tiger Woods the way that, I, I mean, I had my doubts. I wanted to hold out hope. Um, but I, frankly, wasn't sure I'd ever see a day like this, ever. And over the past year, it felt like we were getting to it, but it seemed like we were still so close yet so far. And my goodness, look where we are now. Look where we are now, indeed. Look where we are now, indeed. Um, all right. 
Let's go through this. I thought this thing was over after the fifth hole. Uh, Francesco Molinari just got up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And he kept making key putt after key putt after key putt. Um, and Tiger had nothing going for him. Needed the birdie at eight just to get some kind of momentum, uh, just some kind of good vibes going. Obviously, the, the shot at seven helped. Um, but Francesco kept answering him. And then the two putt at nine was just incredible. And I honestly thought after five holes, this was going to just be Francesco waltzing the victory. Um, what happened at 12 was shocking. Just absolutely shocking that Poulter, Kepka, Finau, and Molinari all hit it in the water there. And none of them were close. None of them were anywhere close to being up high enough on the ridge. It. What was your thought as the as the as as the first nine went on, and then when we got to the second nine? Because I thought this was Francesco's, and there wouldn't be much to talk about. I had the same concern early, um, but for me, it was more along the lines of he made the par putt at one. You mentioned that he made the par putt at five. He got the impossible up and down from behind the green at six. Uh, then you fast forward up to nine, where he made another clutch putt. Yeah. You know, you go back to that front nine. Uh, seven, he actually did bogey. But you go back to that front nine, and you look at, he had the one bogey, could have easily had four more. Peter Green, he was not playing like himself. Um, and, and it just sort of kind of reminded me of 2014 Jordan Spieth, who had the lead going into the weekend. I'm not sure he even shot a single round in the 60s, but it was one of those years that the score to par wasn't super low, and I think he shot 370s and was in the final group. And he was just sort of holding it together, and he was still within touch. And then they got to the back nine, and that's where Bubba separated himself. And I think Jordan lost by, I want to say, one or two. Um but it, it just sort of felt like at some point in time, either he's going to be an escape artist. He's going to, I don't know how he got up and down as often as he did from some of the spots he hit it. But at some point in time, you know, at five, I started to feel like you did, where it's like, well, what's going to happen here? Is he really just going to get himself out of trouble and everybody else is going to fall apart around him and he's going to waltz his way in? Or... Is he going to bend so far that eventually he breaks and something happens to him? And to me, it was always one of those two alternatives. One of the two. And I'm not saying I expected him to hit it in the water at 12, and I'm not saying I expected to see him hit it in the water on 15. But it wasn't something that was totally out of the imagination for me that a guy who really teed a green wasn't playing really well wouldn't hit the best of shots coming in on the back nine, and it might cost him here or there. To the extent it did, no, I didn't expect it. Um, but it was something that was in the back of my mind that it could be a possibility. It's just not something we've seen from Francesco very much. And that made it all the more perplexing. And as you mentioned, that ball hit closer to the bottom of the bank than it did the top. I mean, to me, it even sounded like he didn't even catch it solid. No. It, it looked weak in the air. It didn't. It, it sounded. It sounded like he didn't catch it solid. And to that point, Jeremy, 
I thought he hit the wedge on 15 heavy. I know it caught a limb, but it sounded like regardless of whether it caught that limb, I thought he caught it heavy and would have been in the water. Me too. I, I called it fat. I mean, not that I was on the air or anything, but I literally said out loud, I think he chunked it. I agree. That looked like that a way too... That would have been front bank rolling back in the water anyway. Yeah, that was a way too big divot for what he was attempting to do. Yep, I agree entirely. Um, two bad shots in two really bad moments. And the other thing about it is is Francesco was spraying it a bit, tee to green. He wasn't as sharp. He didn't hit the ball as well as he did the first couple of days, and his putters saved oh. him and, and bailed him out. And as you and I know, watching so much golf week to week, eventually you hit that bad nine holes, right? What does everybody say? In a 72-hole tournament, you will, if, if you win, you will have played 63 great holes, and then you need to survive the other nine. And he didn't survive the other nine, nor did Tony Finau. Well, I think it's just, you know, it, going to Francesco specifically, and that back nine, I mean, you, it, we detailed it. The long par putts on four different occasions, making the bogey at seven. I mean, that's an exhausting way to play golf. And that's not something he had done previously in that tournament or really in any other tournament that we've seen him win because he's been a machine almost. That's an exhausting way to play nine holes, 18 holes, whatever. Because uh, he really, to be honest with you, aside from a couple of birdies and a few pars that were more routine, he didn't just play nine bad holes of golf. He played somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 13, maybe even 14. I mean, he was scratching five or so par saves out, but when you consider the two doubles with five ridiculous par saves, that's seven not-so-great holes. And then there was a couple of other occasions where it didn't look so great either. So, I mean, it, there, was, <laughs> there, there was quite a bit, you know, and it wasn't just stretched on one string of nine, you know, the front or the back. It just did not seem right that day. And if you're going to have to get yourself out of trees, out of the second cut, uh, from tight lies behind greens with shelves and, you know, the undulations of those greens out there and trying to navigate your way around it, that's an exhausting way to play. And I just feel like it took a toll on them. At some point in time, it's going to take a toll on everybody. And, uh, and, it, and it just sort of came to a head at 12, and he still had a shot going into 15. He was still within touch. And then 15 happened, and that just sort of put that final nail in the coffin. But, yeah, it was, it was a perplexing turn of events. But at the same time, you know, you go back in hindsight's 2020, and you think about just how atypical he was, Peter Green, and you think, wow, when you consider what it could have been had he not made a few par putts, we could be talking somewhere in the neighborhood of the high 70s, maybe even close to 80. Yeah. Uh, talking to Sean Davison here on Teeing It Up. You know, uh, I don't. I, I think most people, when you ask them who finished second, can name Xander Shoffley, um, who really made a great run, and all kudos to him for birdieing 13 and 14. And, and he had his chances down the stretch, obviously. Um, hit in the wrong place on 16, which didn't help his cause. Uh, but I think a lot of people will not mention the name Dustin Johnson. Dustin Johnson birdied 13, 15, 16, 17, and really, 
after a nice first round and a fairly quiet week, came back and he came to 18 and had a shot at it. Um, and it, it just goes to show you that even somebody who we think is um, perfect um, or, or should be in contention every week isn't always perfect. Dustin gave himself out of a bunker uh, a great shot. He hit it to 17 feet and he just couldn't make the putt. And that's kind of like that next stage, I think, for, for Dustin is being able to, you know, hit that putt right and, and, and make those putts on cue. It's the putter that's always held him back. And I'm re-watching the putt right now and that's a new green and he just left it short and never gave it a chance to go in the hole. And I think that's a mistake that he won't make going forward. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Dustin's always seemingly at times struggled with the putter, and that's been what's held him back. He's had a lot of high finishes in majors, and, you know, you can walk through the different controversies and the different, you know, issues that have taken place. You go back to that PGA where it seemed like he should have, could have, would have won that one, and he grounded his club in what was deemed to be a bunker and ended up not even in that playoff. Um, you, you know, it's... It, it's insane when you think of how close he's come so often, and some of the issues have been self-imposed, and the others have just simply been, as you referred to, an inability to make the putts that matter at the right time. And we've seen him get better at it. You know, at, at one point in time, too, the short came all together. That was kind of letting him down. A guy who hits it nine miles gets it up there near the green with a wedge in his hand and wasn't nearly as effective as you would expect him to be. Um, and he's worked out the short game, and I think he's going to work out the putter. I think he's playing really well overall. I still expect to see him win multiple times the rest of the year, and I wouldn't be shocked to see him pick up a major title at the PGA, at the U.S. Open. Um, not sure what I would think about the Open Championship. It's kind of a wild course being on a new one um, that they're playing out there at Royal Fort Rush. So you could literally throw any name into the hat, and aside from Rory McIlroy, who grew up out there, um, you never know. <laughs> um, but I would not be shocked to see Dustin win a major coming up, and I would not be shocked to see him eventually win the Masters. I think he's a ridiculously talented guy, and I think he's got a fantastic golf game. I think he'll be great. I think he, I think this is the start of, you know, something even better for Dustin Johnson, and he's already really freaking good. Number one player in the world. Um, yeah. Xander Shoffley is going to win one of these things. I was so wrong thinking that he was a fluke. He really stepped up yesterday. Um Birdie eight, birdie nine, uh, with that great putt. Birdie's eleven, which is incredible, and then birdie's thirteen and hits it close on fourteen. For me, and and could have eagled thirteen, um, hit it in a, in a great spot, and uh, and and this is after starting birdie, birdie, bogey, par, bogey, par, bogey. He he turned on the afterburners at the end, and just hit it. Too far uh, up the slope on 16 was wild on 17 and, and in the front bunker on 18. Xander's got moxie. He's going to win one of these things. I was really wrong on him. You know, I've always liked Xander. I really have. Um, we didn't know him until the U.S. Open. Yeah. But after the U.S. Open at Aaron Hills, where we also introduced ourselves or were introduced formally to Brooks Kepka. Uh, you know, ever since then, both of those guys really have proven to be here for the long haul. Uh, and both of those guys finished in a tie for second at Augusta. And, you know, Xander is the unspoken 
class of 2011 participants, if you will. And while so much of the attention have, has gone to his peers, the Justin Thomases, the Jordan Speed, and rightly so, they've won majors already. Uh, this guy seems to be the late bloomer of the bunch, if you will. And the way he's consistently seeming to contend and the way he seems to continue to take steps forward, this is the second major that he's really put himself in position to perhaps walk away with the title. I mean, Carnoustie, he had himself in the mix late with the chance to win. Uh, and, and now here at Augusta, gave himself a shot. I mean, this is starting to become a common thing, and now he's starting to figure out how to play in major championships. Uh, so this guy is dangerous, if you will. He really is. And he's got a fantastic personality, demeanor. He's very relatable. And I think that's great for the game of golf. I really do. And I look forward to seeing him grow. Talking to Sean Davidson about the Masters. Brooks Kepka uh, had a wacky, wacky back nine, and if 18 green doesn't get resurfaced for 2019, I think he makes his putt. I think Tiger makes his par putt. Um, but all kudos to Kepka, who makes that double at 12 and then comes back and eagles 13 and then birdies 15. Um, for me, um, and and he misses that putt low on 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 18. For me, I know he lost, uh, but he made the Matt Kuchar mistake on 16. He hit it up top on the slope there, and you just can't do that. Um, and that's one swing, obviously, which he would like back. You know, he looked so good on Thursday, but he didn't seem as sharp on, on Friday. He made the double on two and just didn't seem like himself uh, the rest of the week. I don't know if T to Green he was playing like himself, but his brain has gotten better every single time. And I think now that... The ESPN body issue, if you believe that, um, has passed, and he can start doing the things that he used to do and get back on the weight and eat right and train the way he wants to. I think he's in a really interesting and strong position now to, to move forward, and I'm actually impressed. Even though he missed that putt and never gave it a chance at the hole, which is, is, is inexcusable, I actually like the way he finished and actually think this is good for Brooks. Well, I think for me the big takeaway is you know, I think at some point in time, yeah, he's won two U.S. Opens, which is insane to even say. He's won a PGA, all of those recently, three out of what for him is his last six because he missed the Masters due to an injury. Uh, and now you could say last seven because he just played this last one. A lot of people, myself included, would have been quick to point to the Open Championship as maybe the first one he would win because of the several years he played in Europe and with the length that he has and just the versatility in his game mixed with the raw power and athleticism that he possesses. And I still am convinced that he will win an Open Championship. And I still think it will be sooner rather than later. But the Masters is always kind of the outlet. Conceptually, you would think, yeah, he'd play well there. And I, I'm pretty sure he's had a top 10. And if not a top 10, it was like a T11 before. But now that you've seen him play that well there, too, the sky's the limit for this guy. And if he can get himself healthy, which it seems like if he can contend at Augusta, he's on the right track, maybe we'll start to see him win or contend in some more of these regular season tournaments. We already saw him nearly walk away with a Honda Classic title. Keith Mitchell outlasted everybody. 
And we haven't seen him very much since then. But, you know, as we go into the summer months and we start to play major championship golf every month, and there's something for him to get tuned up for, and I don't think it's an issue of him not being focused or anything. I just think it's a tough place to play out there, and it's really tough to win. Um, we'll see what he can do. We'll see if he can match, you know, the raw athleticism and what seems to be this emerging mental strength that he has. And, I mean, yeah, I said Shoffley was dangerous, but I think we've already come to understand just how dangerous Brooks can be and just how dominant Brooks can be. But, I mean, if you would have told me at this point that Jordan Spieth would have won a Masters, a U.S. Open, and an Open Championship, and he's the guy that for years, and still, a lot of folks really love. But at this point in time, Brooks Kepka would have won the same number of tournaments. Granted, two of one major, not one of three. But that Brooks Kepka would have won the same number of major championships as Jordan Spieth, considering the start Jordan Spieth got almost from the moment he made it out on tour, he was contending in majors. I'd be shocked. I mean, heck, Brooks was still over in Europe. They have the same number of majors. I get where he's coming from, the underdog mentality and the um, being slighted by the media. And that's why I've always, I mean, not that I'm particularly active on the golf beat, but that's why I've always wanted to point a finger at this guy because he's got all the tools. He checked all the boxes. And as you mentioned now, when you can see his ability to grind, fight through adversity, shake off mistakes, roll up the sleeve, get back to work, he's got a champion mentality. We've seen it three times, and then we saw it again on Sunday, even though he came up just short. And even though, as you mentioned, there's a couple of days in the middle of the tournament where it didn't seem like he had his best stuff at all. He still nearly won the Masters. And that's that's terrifying, honestly. (laughs) Um, Tiger did this the old way. Tiger let others crumble, and he did the old Jack Nicklaus move of just hitting it center green on 12. Hit a great drive on 13 in the rain when his foot slipped. I think that draw, which he had been working on all season and all offseason, uh, six months in, in, in the making, he said, I think that was a big swing that won't get talked about a lot. Drills that drive, um, is left with nothing basically into the green, hits it on their two putts, almost birdies 14, um, hits it on in two with a five iron on 15, and, and then obviously hits the shot on 16. He did this the methodical, old-school way. He let others go around him and dissolve and let everybody else clear the path for him. And then when he knew he had a two-shot lead on 18, he smartly hit it way right, knowing that um, he could just simply pitch it up and two-putt and get out of there with a bogey. And who cares what score you make? You're a champion, and you can go hug Charlie and Sam. Um the actual, I, I think T to green, Tiger drove it so well this week, and that little baby fade or the draw when he needed it, although he overdrew it on two and was very lucky yesterday to, to not be in that creek that's down there on two. He's hit it in that creek before. It's not where you want to be on the second golf hole. Um, I just thought that this, the, the end of his round and those last six holes, six, seven holes, 
was just so methodically classic Tiger. It was relentless. That's the word I would use. Relentless. He didn't blink. He didn't set a foot wrong. I mean, sure, maybe the drive on 18 hugged the right side of the fairway a little bit too much, gave him some tree trouble. But he didn't set a single foot wrong. It was relentless execution, precision, intelligent club selection, intelligent um, aim point selection. I mean, he did everything right. He was a tactician out there. And you're absolutely right. He allowed other people to either run out of holes or to run into mistakes. The only thing that was moderately concerning, and you can't even say it's a concern now because he's wearing a green jacket, was that he missed some more of the shorter putts that you would used to think that he would make. And he even alluded to it in that second interview with Jim Nance and Nick Valdo that you can still catch on the Masters app. And, yeah. and he said, you know, the big thing for him was that the greens were so much slower. And he had to adjust to putts doing different things or, you know, having to hit the ball harder, which meant, you know, readjusting lines and whatnot. He said he knew what every putt was going to do, but because the greens were so much softer than they usually are and slower than they usually are, that he, he had to make mental adjustments as he went. And I think we saw that from the Thursday-Friday round to Saturday where he didn't make, or he didn't, sorry, have a short miss. He was perfect inside that 10-foot range, if I'm not mistaken, on Saturday. And he had a few misses on Sunday. But, I mean, aside from the putter probably not being where he'd want it to be, it was effective enough. It was effective enough. And that's what he was, Pete to green and on the green, all weekend long. I don't think I've seen him drive the ball better, to be honest with you. I really don't. I don't think I've seen that many club pulls out of him. And when he drove it out of play, he had that same escapability about him. It it was, to a certain degree, even though he was older, and, you know, some of the shots that he might have tried to pull off, maybe a little bit more heroic in the past, and somehow he did pull off some really heroic shots, um... You know, he didn't try those. You know, he went with the punch outs, and he would make sure he was hitting smart ones wherever he went. But I felt like he missed in the right places, left himself the right putt, and made enough of them. And there's something to be said for it. And we can now not only put to bed the questions of, is he back, and will he win another major, but we can also put put to bed the question of, is he ever going to win one from behind? Yeah. I mean, he just he just knocked out three long-time questions and valid ones in one weekend. Yeah, a bunch of stats uh, and a bunch of things went adios um, yesterday when, when he did that. Um, it's interesting. You know, I, I thought he had made that putt on 18. Um, obviously, I- it doesn't break the same way after the redo. Um but for my money, he was hitting good putts the whole time, and that's what mattered. It was quality putts he was making, and because of that, he was able to um, overcome a lot of hurdles, overcome a lot of 
um, shortcomings, knowing that if he ever could match up line and speed, he'd be in great shape because um, he was hitting good putts. Same thing with that miss in Austin against Lucas uh, Beauregard. I still think that was the best thing that could ever have happened to Tiger um, at the match play was to lose that match, not have a cold morning, you know, to come back to on Sunday and, and have to play 36. But he hit a good putt there that, that he just misread and it missed the hole. And uh, he hit good putts all week. They finally went in on Saturday when he made the run and enough went in on Sunday when, when he needed them to um, to win. And that Scotty Cameron putter has sent him to the victory zone uh, and, and back to Butler Cabin once again. Um, so now we're at 81. We're one behind Sam's record. I think he easily breaks that record and potentially may do it sometime in the next three, four months. Um, let's first deal with this before we deal with 18. Do you think he breaks Sam's record? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I think he'll break Sam's record. That's, yeah. That's pretty much an inevitability at this point. And what's interesting, too, is he's in a really good schedule spot now. This one gives him 880 FedEx Cup points. Please don't at me, folks. This is, this is a, a real thing. He has 880 FedEx Cup points. He's 13th. He has essentially clinched his way to the BMW Championship. And where that is significant is he is going to have to most likely, I would think, skip a playoff event. I don't think he wants to go three straight weeks. I think his body can do it, but I think he would love to be able to not to. And I think the PGA Tour would understand. Um, so this is significant. And now his schedule works to his favor. And now his schedule works to his favor. Two weeks off, Wells Fargo. A week off, the PGA. A week off, uh, Jack's Place. A week off, the U.S. Open. Then he can do whatever he wants between the U.S. Open and the Open. He can play one of the new events in Minnesota or Detroit. He can take that whole four-week stretch off. I don't know what he's going to do. He can play the Scottish. He's got a bunch of choices. The Open Championship... He can make a, 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 a determination if he wants to go straight from there to Memphis. That That's going to be an interesting body turnaround for some older players. Week off, and, and then, then playoffs. So, And he's won at all those venues, um, except for Royal Portrush and Memphis. So this suddenly has broken wide open, and he's got enough rest spots in here to make this work. And for my money, Sean... Um, I think he's going to have a, a, a very successful year. I think he'll win again in 2019. I don't know if you can have four or five win seasons anymore. Obviously, Kepka's done it, and JT's done it, and and Spieth has done it. But it's just it's so much harder. I mean, who who could have seen Corey Connors, you know, winning um, at at a Valero to get the last ticket in? Um, you know, that was out of nowhere, and and beating you know somebody in. Um, Charlie Hoffman, who everybody would have thought would have been the favorite down the stretch at, at TPC San Antonio. I really think this schedule now plays the Tigers' favor for the rest of 2019. I agree. I give them two more. I'm not sure which two, but I'm going to say two more. And I think, you know, we, you laid out a list of tournaments that, you know, you mentioned the venues in the FedEx Cup that he's won on. I mean, he's won at Quail Hollow. He's won at Beth Page, where the PGA is. He's won at Pebble. He's won at Jack's tournament. I mean, he's won 
At, I mean, he's won Open Championships, not at Royal Port Rush, but I mean, then you go into the playoff events. That's what six or seven different tracks he's won on. Yep, Liberty National, uh, where he has not won, but he was a part of. Uh, he was a all right. So okay, I take that back. He has not won at Liberty National, although he was a winning vice captain on that Presidents Cup team. But he contended there in 2013 when the back acted up. So he's he has put himself in position. It's a golf course that he's been successful on. He's won. Uh, where is the BMW this year? That's actually a good question. Medina. Uh, okay, yeah, we, we know what's happened there. Um, and then obviously Eastlake, he's, he's the uh, defending champion. This all sets up for him uh, really nicely. So, yeah, now, Jack says he's, uh, he's, he's, he's got me nervous. He said that with a laugh last night on Golf Channel. Um, 15, he needs Phil Mickelson's major career to tie... I, I, I just think it's such a tall ask with these deep fields. I mean, we literally had Xander Shoffley almost win this event. Who would have said that two years ago? Um, we almost had Patrick Cantlay win this event. Who would have said that two years ago before he came back from his back injuries and all the mental problems? Uh, 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 sorry, not problems, mental issues and trauma. Um, it's a lot that of guys that can win every week. And... Lo and behold, um, that's a lot to ask. Four more majors to break it is tough to ask in a window that we don't know how big it is. It's a tough ask, um, but I am one of a growing number of people that feels like he might get one more this year. You know, just looking at the next two on courses that he knows well, plays well on, and has one on. Um, and won majors on. It's uh, You can look at Pebble. I mean, I get it. He's not going to be blitzing the field by 15. And I know that Pebble in the U.S. Open is a different Pebble than it is during the AT&T Pro-Am. But he's got a proven track record of not just in the Pro-Am, but also in the U.S. Open of playing well and winning there. And then, of course, you've got Beth Page. And when you mix in the right amount of rest, and especially with Beth Page being right around the corner, where, you know, you're talking, you've got a major coming every month. So you've got exactly from one month today, they will be teeing off at Beth Page. It's actually one month t- t- uh, tomorrow. That, okay, one month and a day. Yes. Um, the uh, long drive contest is uh, one month from today. If you would like to participate in that, PGA Championship participants. <laughs> No, I don't. I don't think he'll be participating in that. I think he's conceded that that's not going to happen. Well, well, it, it's actually interesting because the way they've set that up, um, unless you are not playing a practice round on that nine, you're just playing your practice round. So, for him, I mean, I don't know if he wants to juice a driver just for that purpose, but he can just hit his normal drive and, and participate in quotes, you know, check the box, and then just move on with his practice round. Um. So they've actually made it really easy to participate, which is why that whole Bubba fiasco was so befuddling because they literally, you didn't have to do anything. You literally had to hit a shot, just continue your practice round, and then if you happen to be the winner, come back later so they could present you with the uh, belt clip. 
That was it. That was as that that was as simple as possible. But yes, one month from today, it's it, it, it's right around the corner, um, and Jim and Sir Nick will be there. Um, for me, what's really exciting about this next stretch for Tiger is he made the right call at Bay Hill by withdrawing. And I really, I, I, I can't overstate the importance of that. And you know it. He withdrew because he just didn't feel right. And he didn't want to take it from a nuisance to an injury. And I think that if that's what Tiger does and lives through the nuisances and, and lives with that, but plays smartly and stays away from the injuries. He's got the talent to win. He showed that yesterday. He's got the best brain in the game. And um, Mike Trico pointed this out yesterday that he was reading Tiger, uh, sorry, uh, this morning on, on the Dan Patrick show, he was reading Tiger's press conference comments, and Tiger noticed the Kepka Poulter water shots while putting on 18 green. And he thought to himself, he saw it and he said, with that trajectory, they most likely hit a nine iron that was too soft. Okay, I've got to recalibrate like this. That's what the wind's doing. And that was before he putted, you know, two putted on 11. I mean, his brain is his 15th club, as Tariko said. And that's what I think is so exciting about this. He's got enough distance. He can now hit a draw. He would have hit it longer this week if it had played firm and fast. So I... I'm not one who's worried about how short, in quotes, he was hitting it this week. That'll change once we get into the heat. And he's somebody now that can use his brain to his advantage. And if his putter's hot, look, it took one event for Matt Killen to have an impact. One event. Worked with him at the players and he was fixed. <laughs> I mean, that's what excites me, Sean, is he's driving the ball great, but his brain is on fire and his putter is heating up. That is a lethal threesome. I agree. And he's got tournaments right around the corner and venues right around the corner that he has not just good experience on, but winning experience. I will say this about Beth Page. He almost won, uh, sorry, about um, Pebble. He won there in 2010, um, uh, sorry, 2000, and he almost won in, in 2010. Remember, that was in that stretch where he couldn't close on the weekend in majors or in any event, period, and had all sorts of problems, but hit that great shot around the tree on Saturday. Um, I'm just skeptical that he can perform up to snuff at Pebble in the summer. I think he would do better there in the, in, in the winter. We'll see how it plays out and how the course changes and stuff will play into his hands come June. Beth Page is a really interesting um, scenario. I was there... Three weeks ago, I walked out uh, behind that 18th green and it, the weather had not turned here. And it's finally turned and grass is finally green here, but it's been wet. It's been a really wet couple months. Um, that is going to be a how that plays this week and how this next month goes weather wise is going to be really fascinating to see what kind of a Beth Page we get. Because this could play really long and really tough. Or if it's warm and it gets firm, it could play really short. And it could play like it has in the, in the uh, Northern Trust, where the winning score has not been what it would be in a U.S. Open. 
Um, and being out there and just seeing the thatch and how dormant the grass was, was stunning to me. Having been there in 02 and, and then walking around that place and seeing it, it, it's in as great shape as it could be on March 20-whatever. That was 23rd in dormant conditions. Um, but it's really interesting. That tournament, 9 under 1 in 2016, 10 under 1 in 2012, and those are the only two times Beth Page has hosted it. Um, I don't think we're going to see... I mean, we could. I mean, Kerry Haig is great with setups, so he'll be smart about this. But I think that this could be a 6-under PGA or a 15-under PGA. I think both their options haven't been out there recently. Well, that means I'm really looking forward to the PGA. <laughs> It'll be here before you know it. Um, is there anything we've left out? What a great move, by the way, to move up tee times because I'm not sure if you saw any of the post-game coverage. It poured. They nailed that. They nailed that. They absolutely did. And, and, of course, you get people coming in off work and the Masters is still on TV in its usual time slot. I don't know what CBS's ratings were, but I can imagine they were astronomical. Yeah. Um, so here's the here's the numbers for you. By the way, folks, if you have not seen it, please go to Nick Faldo's Twitter feed. So CBS, because of the way they did the encore presentation and because they got Tiger live and they had Jim and Nick coming in and out of breaks, they were on the air until seven. Faldo gets off the air, steps out. The line of storms had passed. It was sunny, no wind. And nobody around. And he posted the video of it on his Twitter feed. Check that out, folks. It's Augusta National like you have never seen it. It's eerily beautiful and spiritual. So check that out. Um, you won't be able to, to recognize number 18 because that flag and flag stick um, is in, uh, is in uh, Joe LaCava's house right now. He took the whole thing home with him. The rating for CBS, CBS did an overnight uh, rating last night, which is the 56 highest rated markets in America, of 7.7. That is down from the 8.7 last year, but it's up from the 7.6 in 2016. We do not have viewership numbers yet because there are weather issues with some markets reporting it, and these... Even the overnights were delayed, so we're not going to get a viewership number probably until tomorrow. If you combine that with the tape delay number, that now does an 11 rating. So it, the, the Encore did a 3-4. Um, the combined overnight is an 11. The 3-4 rating, if you eliminate... Saturday and Sunday live at Augusta is the most watched golf telecast of the year. <laughs> so literally, folks, if you're ranking golf telecasts for 2018, it's, tw it's Masters final round live, Masters third round live, Masters fourth round tape. <laughs> um, and uh, that is the highest overnight rating in history for morning golf. The ratings go back 34 years. 
So that's how far back it goes, but it is the most watched morning golf telecast in known history. Um, and it is the highest share percentage TV is of use for any Masters telecast since 2011. However, the number of TVs that were in use was down 21% versus the normal time slot in 2018. So, in essence, it was a great number for the morning. It even beat Sergio Justin Rose 2017, but it would have been just astronomically better if it had been live in its usual time slot. And what a great finish. What a great tournament it was. What a great tournament. What a great finish. And that scene, and this is what we're going to end with, Sean. Um, Mom, girlfriend, Sam, who loses in a soccer tournament, loses in the semis so that she doesn't make the final and can attend it uh, and, and can attend the final round. Charlie who wrote on his fourth grade New Year's resolution, thank you, Erica, for giving this nugget to Nance, that uh, his New Year's resolution was, his, was to see his dad win a golf tournament in person. Steiny, Glenn, Rob McNamara, um, and the idea of those Masters champions who were in the champions' locker room to put on their jackets, go out there and greet him, and that receiving line. You can't beat that moment. You cannot beat those four minutes and three seconds that the Masters uploaded to all their feeds. It was the most powerful, overwhelming, and incredible four or so minutes of televised golf I've ever seen. Right up there with the mob scene at Eastlake, but even then so because of what tournament it was and what it meant. Yeah. Um, and frankly, look, there's going to be countless people who have lived longer than I have and have seen iconic, more iconic sporting events than I have that might be able to make more direct comparisons or similarities or draw some more similarities. But in my life, I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen 18 at Augusta National turn into a party like it did. Yeah, Jimmy's never heard anyone yell Tiger, Tiger. Uh, sorry, Tariko's never heard anyone yell Tiger, Tiger before. So, yeah, I mean, that was an atmosphere. That was that was euphoria to the max. Yeah, I, I mean, I've... And that's just me using those words uh, to describe that moment. To live it. To be there. To be tiger. And the and and the pictures that have come out of airports, um, of people gathering around bar TVs, the flight attendant on a Delta flight, um, who announced it uh, to the cabin and was met with a round of applause. Um, most flight attendants are not greeted with a round of applause on airplanes, unfortunately, these days. Um, that was, I mean, just the way this has a cultural impact um, is just huge. And the way that this has been received and just to have his kids there. Um, um, it's, uh, it's, it's powerful. It really is powerful. I've had a lot of people ask if I cried. I did not cry. I would put this up there. 
golfing wise. I I still I go back to something we talked about, uh, Sean last year um, after the PGA when Tiger made that putt on eighteen, and. Faldo tried to get it out of him, and a couple other people tried to get it out of him, what that putt meant. And he has said repeatedly that it was building and building. He learned from his mis- his his mistakes, and then he did it at Eastlake. And at the time, he said, no, the emotion was because I, I sank the putt to give myself a chance in case Kepka hits it, um, you know, stray. But to me, after botching 17 and making that birdie on 18 to shoot, what, 65, I think that was? That was, I can do this on Sunday. And lo and behold, here we are at the next major. And he's now contended in three straight, had the lead in two of the last three. Um, you know, sniffed the lead at the PGA, so it's essentially three of the last three. Um, I just think that that putt he made on 18 at Bell Reeve, and then that reaction and that scene over the bridge, and that shot from the from the CBS cameraman to capture it, um, that to me, and then coupled with this, those two golf images, with Eastlake just you know juxtaposed in the middle of all that, um, is just an incredible golf arc of six months. And this almost ended on Friday when that security guard slipped in the tiger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean... If his foot had been firmly planted, this is a whole different story. Instead, it's being slightly kicked in the back of your heel, which if you ever had it happen to you or, or have been stepped on, it hurts like hell for two minutes and then you're fine. Luckily, his foot was off the ground. If not, that is a hellacious situation for Augusta National, that security guard and Tiger. Yep. No, you're, you're right on that. Uh, but to go back to those scenes, and, you know, I was asked last night, I had another cameo, you know, why it is that so many people love Tiger. You know, I was asked the same thing this morning. Uh, 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 sorry to interrupt, Sean. I was asked the exact same thing this morning. I was asked, through all of his downfalls and transgressions why is he so beloved so i'm curious as to your answer to see if it matches up with mine go ahead so here's the thing i found interesting about the way that question was framed and i never even thought about it that way the way that it was framed and it made me even think while i was being asked the question which is great when you're trying to answer one to not even be thinking about the question yes um is you know nobody seems to like alabama Unless you root for Alabama. Yes. Nobody seems to like Tom Brady in the past unless you love him. Same thing with the Red Sox. Same thing with Notre Dame. Same thing, and the list goes on. Ohio State, on. Michigan, depending on which we, side we you are. We as a society have this avulsion, if you will, to dominant figures. Golden State, a lot of people cannot and Golden State right now because they win so much. And there's other reasons I get it. Um, But yet, (laughs) with Tiger Woods, at this stage of his career, I mean, the mob scenes that we've seen and everybody, it's almost like people of all generations 
are either saying thank you or are finally and excitedly getting the opportunity to see him for the first time, as he's been described to them. Um, so the way I put it was, you know, we've been very fortunate, going back to the example I made at the top of the show, to have sports figures like the likes of Michael Jordan and Tom Brady, Serena Williams, Roger Federer, Tiger Woods, Michael Phelps, in our lifetime that have rewritten the record books, have set new standards, and have been true champions in what they do. And in all those cases, every single one of them, should be and will be celebrated for who knows how long, probably ever. But in Tiger's case, the world was introduced to him when he was two. We've seen the phenom, sorry, we've seen the prodigy become the phenom. And through the mistakes and through the issues and through the health setbacks, we've seen the phenom become a father. And through all of that, we have gone from gravitating to a kid that made golf cool with raw athleticism and passion to a guy who's had it all fall apart. And there's something intrinsic about society where we like when people have second chances. And we like when they make the most of them. And we like when people believe in themselves to the extent that they're going to do what they set their mind to regardless of how long it takes for them to do it. We love when people go out there and regardless of what other people say, do what they want to do and put themselves out there time and time again. That's the kind of quality that you know, if you have kids at some point in time, I can imagine, you would want to instill in your child. You know, go out there, believe in yourself, almost to a fault, and I don't want to say fake it till you make it, but work at it until you get to where you feel like you want to be. And that's been what he's done from the time he was two to the time he's 42. And will be the way he operates from now till forevermore. And that's why we love Tiger. You know, and that's why we've loved him through the mistakes, through the affairs, through the injuries, through the inability to close on weekends. That's why we love Tiger. I mean, and for me, just selfishly, it's the ability to see a guy almost, I don't want to say take a victory lap because it seems like he's starting up something new now. But to have this victory lap in his 40s, playing phenomenal golf, contending in the last three majors, winning a fifth Masters. And now for those of us who are older, and I'm saying that as if I'm not 26, but folks who have been telling younger kids who might not have grasped who Tiger Woods was or what he did, heck, he even referred to it in his own kids' right, of them knowing him as the YouTube golfer. He's getting to inspire another generation of people who are then going to tell the stories of their experiences down to the next group. And that's the thing about this that's so darn cool and so incredible. 
and more power to them. But that's why we love Tiger. For me, it's that America loves a redemption story. And while cheating on your wife with 18 women is uh, something that some people do, um, it's not relatable as much as back injuries are relatable and knee injuries are relatable and crippling pain is relatable and prescription drug addiction is relatable. And Tiger became a relatable figure in this comeback and America loves redemption stories America loves great champions and America loves those who make others wilt around them look at Tom Brady in the AFC championship game he made the Chiefs defense look horrible in the fourth quarter in overtime Tom Brady and Tony Romo were on the same page the Chiefs were lost um, Serena you know, winning the Australian Open while pregnant and now her battle's back from, from the complications from, from her pregnancy. There are champions like this who through any faults that they have become beloved because of how they win and because of what they've gone through to get there. Tom Brady's beating father time. Tiger's battling father time. Serena's going through what has been behind closed doors for a lot of women for a long time and changing the way that a lot of women look at pregnancy and hopefully how a lot of employers look at pregnancy, but that's a separate topic. Um, it is really amazing. I think just that it's been this much positive versus negative, but, um, I think people have been able to put the, the, um, other stuff aside. And I also think, that he has never been accused of being a bad dad, that the judge has, has agreed on that, Elon has agreed on that. Everyone has agreed that he's a great dad, and I think that has also helped his cause. None of his issues involved his children, and nobody has ever accused him of bad parenting. And this is different than a lot of other people who have transgressions and also have done horrendous things to their children or, or put their children in, in horrible predicaments or whatever. Yes, Tiger, you know, gave his children mental trauma and did some things that, you know, they should not have had a witness, but he didn't um, break any laws involving children or anything like that because everybody from Elon to the judge to the, the, the DUI judge all the way down has, has, has agreed that he's been a great dad from day one. I think that's really helped this cause too with the American people. And the scene behind the 18th green, that was money. And it, and it that, proves how good of a dad he is. That, that, was, that was worth its weight in gold. I mean, if a picture says a thousand words, I'm sorry, that one said a million. I just feel bad if Charlie had to go to school today, cause or or Charlie or Sam had to go to school today, cause that's such a letdown. That's like you see your dad on the highest of highs. I mean, I I just read something that um, when they when when Tiger went to the Butler cabin ceremony, the folks at Augusta National basically created a party for Tiger and his family, so that the kids would like have food and stuff and like could eat and everything. Like they. They like freed up one room, like some ballroom or dining room or something, and just let all the kids and all the 
and, and Rob and all the Tiger's team, the people who didn't have to be with Tiger but could be away from Tiger, they basically cleared out the place so that they could relax and enjoy themselves. Um, you know, just, just the hospitality of that place is amazing. But, I, man, imagine going back into school today. That's one. You know, math doesn't feel so good after yesterday. Yeah, sorry, not sorry. I, uh, you know, I'm not going to uh, envy them going to school, but I will envy them being able to be there. Yes. That's the thing. And, I, will uh, always, I will always wish that I would have been able to be there, and I know only a select few are ever able to make it in the gates there to Augusta National. But that's what makes that tournament what it is. That's what makes that tournament special. And this, along with 86, might have just been the most special Masters in the history of the tournament. And 97 for the social consequences. But yeah, I mean, you look at, for golf fans, I think you could argue that 04, especially if you're a Phil Mickelson diehard, is one of the great euphoric moments um, in Masters history. But yeah, 86 and this and 97 is up there. There's been some great champions and some great winners. And if you're a European, obviously what Sergio did... um, and answering all those demons and, and erasing them um, is a big moment. Um, what Adam Scott did for a nation, not just a, you know, a state, not just a, a locality, um, not just a town, not just a place, but for a continent and a country um, is, is obviously hugely consequential. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you, 86-97, um, 2019. Sean, thank you so much for coming on Teeing It Up. This was fun, and we can only hope that the PGA lives up to what yesterday was, although that will be hard. And um, Jim Nance said at the start of his conversation um, on, uh, on KNBR Radio today, uh, this week in Hilton Head's going to be tough. It's going to be a tough week for that whole crew. <laughs> tough to bounce back five days later and start producing and calling golf and for... Jim and Nick six days later. That's that's going to be a quick turnaround and uh, hard for next week. Although it's a great field, hard for Hilton had to live up to Sunday. And it's a gorgeous track too. It's a really amazing part of the U.S. If you beautiful. Have a chance to go to Hilton Head. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful and up there in the lighthouse. It, it looks like the lighthouse is is really close to the golf course. There's actually this really cool detachment of space so that when you're up there and you're looking down on 18 you actually are not too close sometimes you can be high but too close there the lighthouse is actually back far enough where it's actually a cool distance gap of sorts if that makes any sense and just that view from the lighthouse down 18 is just really cool and i've said for years cbs should put like a, a gopro or you know it doesn't even have to be the fanciest camera just put something up there just a really cool view <laughs> it doesn't need to be some really cool tournament yes really cool. yes and that tartan jacket will be happily won by somebody this week i i, I can assure you of that sean thanks yeah, as always for coming on teeing it up the jacket stretch of the season jeremy yes we have arrived thank you sir i appreciate it all right thank you, man. and thank you for uh, listening to teeing it up with jeremy Schilling.